I'm uh, a little curious. How many of you saw E.T. in the theater in 1982? All right, I, I won't have to backfill a lot of the information on the plot then today, obviously. So I saw the movie, as many of you did, 1982, in the theater. I recognize that until I had rewatched it this past week, I don't think I had sat through the entire thing from beginning to end. And so one thing I noticed, I didn't notice it when I was 12, I did notice it was 45, that in one of the opening scenes, the first scene in Elliot's house, the main character, well, E.T.'s the main character, the co-main character, Elliot, that his older siblings are playing a game of Dungeons and Dragons. And faintly, in the background, on the radio, the song, People Who Died, by the punk rock Jim Carroll Band is playing. Master Touch by Spielberg. See, if any of you know the song, it is pretty darn grim. Jim Carroll was a punk rocker. He was a writer. He was an addict and then a recovering person. He did not have a real easy life, and he did not grow up around people who had easy lives either. He lost a lot of his friends to violence, to addiction, to mental illness when they were in their teens. And that's what the song's about. All the people he has known who have died. But here's something I heard in it that I don't think I had before. How beautiful and tender that song is as well, too, once you get over its shock value. There's very few songs that rank very high on the grim and tender scale simultaneously. Let's chart this here a little bit, if you would. See, you got the vertical axis here, grim. You got the horizontal tender. Um, grim. Uh, nine inch nails, head like a hole. <laughs> very high on the grim scale. Very low on the tender scale. Head like a hole, black as a soul. I'd rather die than give you control. And Trez Reznor screams that. I'd say sings it, screams it. Grim, not tender. Tender, not grim. I'll stand by you, by the pretenders. Chrissy Hines' beautiful declaration of fidelity. Pretty tender. Grim, not so much. And then we have people who die. High on the grim scale, high on the tender scale. I challenge you to find a song as grim and as tender as People Who Died. I, actually, I kind of challenge you. I'm curious. <laughs> but here's why it's a masterstroke by the filmmaker Steven Spielberg. Because even before we know what's happening, if we don't know the plot when we go into E.T., if we're listening, he's given us a really clear hint. This is a movie that for all its mystery and for all its fantasy is about really, really real stuff. It's about the spiritual question from which all the other spiritual questions come. That all these forms, physical, personal, everything we know, everyone we love, will change and at some point end. How do we live knowing that everything is mortal? the little deaths and the big deaths as we go through life. Now, some of you might know, as famous as this movie is, 
and may have read about it, that Steven Spielberg, his inspiration for this came from a very specific place in his own life. Like the character Elliot, a young boy, he, when his parents split up, found himself in a place of terrible loneliness, feeling himself bereft. And so he invented an imaginary friend. That imaginary friend became, on the screen, E.T. Here's the cool thing about this movie. Well, one of the many cool things is that unlike your typical Hollywood way of doing it, family split up, kid tries really, 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 really hard, a series of wacky incidences occur, family gets back together. But we know sometimes that isn't really life, right? still doesn't mean that hunger to feel connection, even when we're bereft, isn't the deepest part of who we are. And so Spielberg offers up something different. A creature who heals, brings things back to life, brings himself back to life, stays for a while, changes lives, and then has to leave. By the way, Spielberg is not the only person raised Jewish who is absolutely fascinated in an unorthodox way with Jesus. You're looking at one of them himself as well, too. I mean, just look at the original, the original poster. Huh. What does that look like? The Sistine Chapel, the creation of Adam. PG version, no genitalia. Spielberg is after something here that's not just about an individual family unit, alone or together. He's looking for a deeper source of cosmic belonging in this story. I think what he's saying ultimately is that although death has a say, it has an inescapable say in all of our lives, death does not have to have the final word. Like a very different movie, The Departed, the Boston crime drama saga, if you remember it from a few years ago, when one of the really vicious characters asks how someone's mother is. You don't really get the sense he's all that interested. Says, well, she's on her way out. And the response is, well, he's all, we all are, act accordingly. (laughs) That's a question for us. Now, hopefully we're not going to have the mobster's response, just act accordingly, which is I'm going to get mine and everyone else be damned and cause as much harm and as much death and chaos as I can. That act accordingly can be an invitation for us to grow our hearts, to pay attention in a world in which everything is passing into and out of existence and all the forms are changing all the time. Some of us get stuck there, stuck in not wanting to pay attention, stuck in not recognizing our mortality. You ever been in a meeting? in which it's clear the room is kind of, you know, uh, stuck and the energy's bogged down and someone makes a joke. Moving on. You ever hear that? Moving on. Because they want to shift the topic. But you know at the same time that we say, moving on, all the underlying dynamics remain the same. (laughs) There is no moving on. If we act accordingly, however, according to our mortality our hearts will soften and we can come alive. Now, 
recognizing that everything is always passing out of existence in one form or another and things are always changing, can lead us to the opposite extreme of falsely moving on. It can lead us to what I sometimes like to call, especially you see this in a lot of progressive spiritual communities. So I'm not looking at any of us individually or looking at myself, but it's just a trend here. What I like to call competitive letting go. Maybe you see it, you see it on Facebook, you see little memes, you see the sense, I'm letting it go. I'm letting it go. Are you letting it go? I don't think you've let it go. I think you ought to let it go. It's going to hurt you if you don't let it go. Damn it, let it go. I'm not going to start singing the song, but I mean, it's become a huge song. But here's the thing with letting it go. When we're so focused on just letting it go and letting it go and letting it go, Letting go only works its magic in our hearts if first we really know what it's like to hold and to be held. Other than that, focusing on letting it go all the time is just indifference. (laughs) Or at the worst, narcissism. (laughs) In which we're the only one in the game. So true letting it go first is about what the Beatles said. Let it be. Let ourselves be. Let ourselves learn how to live and to love in a world in which change and loss are inevitable. To quote from a wonderful book with an even better title from James Ford, a recently retired UU minister and also Zen priest, one of my favorite titles of all the books there are, If You're Lucky, Your Heart Will Break. If you're lucky, your heart will break. Because that's life. Brokenness is here. If we'll allow ourselves to feel it, then we'll change. Then we'll grow. Yes, we have to leave. There is no living without leaving, and there is no leaving without living. To truly let go is to grow the heart. It is to recognize that unlike the Clash sang in that wonderful song so many years ago, right around the time that E.T. came out, should I stay or should I go? Well, sometimes the answer, especially when we get into the depth of our lives, the depth of the deeper awareness, is that things both stay and go simultaneously. It was one of the first lessons my mom taught me. It was this. You can practice this with your own hands, or if you're comfortable doing so, maybe taking the hands of someone close to you, whether you know them or not, if you don't know them well. Well, ask permission all the way, even if you know them well. Just take your own hands if you wish. This is a little practice she taught me. One squeeze, I love you. Four squeezes back, I love you too. I love you. I love you too. And then say goodbye. Hands part. As all hands have to. This was my first training in holding on and letting go. The power of touch before parting, the promise of what stays even after it leaves, of perhaps a love that is stronger than separation of the fact that love can know loss, but that loss doesn't have to exhaust our love. If E.T. was the primary story and fairy tale of my growing up, well, for kids who are growing up in the last decade or so, it's been Harry Potter, right? And I probably used this image 
10 times already in my preaching. I'll use it, I don't know, tens more times, 100 if I'm around here long enough. That invitation from the resurrection stone to open at the close. Sometimes we feel, oh, it's just closed. I'm just moving on. (laughs) Or I'm just letting go. But to recognize the deeper wisdom of staying open even when our lives are in forms of closing. I don't think anyone can teach us the art of how to open at the close. It is not a content that we can just go to school for. It is not a fact that can be downloaded onto us. This is why I think more than anything, or at least I hope, why you chose to come here this morning rather than just grabbing the paper or grabbing your coffee or going onto the internet and just looking for facts. Because facts themselves alone, information itself alone, will never teach us this delicate, deep art of opening at the close and the closes in our lives. We are seasoned into it. We are matured into it. We are inspired into it. Some others around us can show us the way. If not, do it for us. I remember one of my first teachers besides my mom in this way when I was in my 20s was an elder. Someone who had gone back to school and seminary when I was there. This is someone who had suffered a lot of losses in their life had taken their spiritual life very seriously, who knew beyond the silly ways of talking about what it was like to let go, how to fully let go for dear life. We were in a pastoral theology class, and she was talking about her experience. For me, as a young 20-something who hadn't lost all that much by this point, listening to her story. And she said, Days and days and days went on where the loss was so great that I did not think I could cope with it, but I kept on paying attention. And then one day I woke up, and the memory was there, but the sting wasn't anymore. This is someone whose heart was seasoned, who learned how to stay open even when the way closes. Sometimes other people who we don't know or don't know well can share their story with us. I showed you this person not too long ago. It's been deeply inspirational to me this year. His name is Paul Kalanithi. And that's Paul Kalanithi when he was in good health. A neurosurgeon at Stanford. The kind of intelligence, I'm pretty smart but the kind of intelligence that I can only imagine. Also has a master's in English literature as well from Oxford. A really, really bright guy. Paul Kalanithi, who never smoked, never had any of the obvious risk factors for cancer, and found that he had metastatic lung cancer at age 36. Life gave him a little more time. A trial gave him a little more time. Experimental medicines gave him a little more time, but only a year. And so who you see there is Paul Kalanithi, no longer in good health. Paul Kalanithi, who is dying. Paul Kalanithi, who, with his wife, had a daughter. These are the words he wrote to his infant daughter in the months before he died. 
from a beautiful reflection called Before I Go. To Katie, I hope that I'll live long enough that she has some memory of me. Words have a longevity that I do not any longer. I had thought I could leave her a series of letters, but what would they really say? I don't know what this girl will be like when she's 15. I don't even know if she'll take to the nickname that I've given her. There is perhaps only one thing to say to this infinite, this infant who is all future, overlapping briefly with me, whose life, barring the improbable, is all but past. That message is simple. When you, Katie, come to one of the many moments in life when you must give an account of yourself, provide a ledger of what you have been and done and meant to the world, do not, I pray, discount that you fill the dying man's days with a sated joy, a joy unknown to me in all my prior years, a joy that does not hunger for more and more but rests satisfied. In this time, right now, for me, that is an enormous thing and enough. Paul Kalanithi died in early March. His story of his going and his staying demonstrates once again that the universe is, of course, a terribly sad place. A hard-to-understand place. Sometimes a dreadfully unfair place. But with his words, an additional reminder that the universe is not intended to be a lonely place. Our lives are more connected than we could ever think. This world is intended to be a love-drenched place. And Paul Kalanithi's words make me think today, of course, of this. The finger, again, intentionally in a place that has great spiritual significance. Often spoke of the, the third eye, the place of insight in the Hindu and Buddhist traditions. The little finger, or the tip of the finger of ETs, at the moment of parting, when that heart light has come back on again, and Elliot says, Why do you have to go? We can all recognize that. I know I do. Why do you have to go? Why does this have to end? Why do we have to be born to die? But the truth is that we do. Just baked into the cake of who we are. And so E.T. offers the final gift. My heart will be carried in your heart, as E.E. E. Cummings wrote many years ago. And I will be right here. The promise we get is not days or years or wealth or health or anything. The promise is presence.
that we get the intimations of a love that is truly stronger than death, and that even when so much goes, if we pay attention, there is so much that stays. We carry each other's hearts with us if we open our hearts in the first place and not just be focused on the letting go all the time. And a final cool little reminder from Steven Spielberg, master not just of the movies, but of the heart. Of course, you know that Elliot and E.T. begin and end with the same letter, right? They carry their hearts with each other. Their lives contain each other. Where is E.T. headed? Mm. Where are we headed after this? Mm. <laughs> it's beyond my pay grade, people. I think it's beyond <laughs> all of our pay grades. I remain open, wonderfully open, as open as I've ever been. But I don't know. And to me, it's not the most important spiritual question this is. It'll take care of itself. The question is not, is there something after? Are we alive then? It's, are we alive right here? Do we allow the imprints of the lives most beloved to us to stay with us? To allow our souls to be marked with the imprint of their grace? The lives we love, it gives life back to us. Our hands joined for a while, but inevitably parting, can still be interlaced, interconnected, interwoven, even when no longer touching. My life, your life, all of our lives. In that way, may we always find what is home. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of beginnings and endings and everything else in between. Spirit that gives birth to open hearts. Hearts that can stay connected. Even in the midst of the ceaseless change of forms passing into and out of being all throughout this life. If we can dig deeper and look more closely with the eyes of love, with the eyes of the heart, we will see rippling through it all simply life in so many different ways, always expressing itself. Yes, some are coming to be and some are passing away, but if we look deeper with the eyes of the heart, we will see that our life indeed does flow on in an endless song, an endless song containing the sounds of all the sounds of love and grace, of pain and despair. Today, may we live in this way, attuning the ear of the heart to hear it all and to be here. Beloved, amen.